maybe this is a corrupt transmission of information. Hmm. A pretty good summary of our podcast. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Welcome to this week's episode of Fear, Honor, and Interest, the podcast for two straight white guys who went to Yale, solve America's cultural divisions by telling you why democracy is a good thing. I'm your host, Charles Bobinger, coming to you from sunny Washington, D.C. With me on the line, as always, from Istanbul, my co-host, David Wheel. David, how's it going? I'm well. I'm well, as we must, as we are doomed to discuss the weather. Uh, there have been some fantastically strange uh, days here of uh, wild fluctuations between hot, desert-like heat and uh, just phenomenal downpours. And, and very pleasant uh, weather in between. So always a, always an exciting journey uh, through the weather here in Istanbul. Well, good. We're supposed to finally get up into the high 90s this week here in D.C. Oh, man. Those yeah. D.C. summers. I D.C. summers. I miss those. The first several years I lived in D.C., I did not have to deal with the summers because I was going somewhere else for the summers. Oh, yeah? After, yeah, after oh, each, with law um, school. Yeah, after law school years. Yeah. And so... Um, and then even after I graduated, I spent that summer at Middlebury. So, um, mm -hmm. it wasn't until I'd been in DC for five years or so that I actually had to experience a DC summer. Yeah. They're not ideal. Yeah. But at the same time, I was talking to my mom the other day about, um, seersucker suits. Okay. Which, uh, which are kind of a delightful thing. I mean, I find them delightful because I find any kind of old fashioned, uh, adaptation to the natural world that we live in to be um, delightful and worthy of uh, attention and respect. And obviously, yeah, the the world in America is uh, very quickly, or I mean, has long since like passed people with that position by um, since the approach now is. Um, much more like, oh, DC summer, damp, heat, you know, just blast it with air conditioning and pretend it isn't there. Yes. Yeah. But I, do, have you, it's, it's been a while since I've actually spent significant time in DC. So like, do people wear seersucker suits there anymore? I don't know that I've ever seen one. Really? Oh man. Maybe it was, maybe it was just a. These, like maybe it's just a, a like hill culture thing. Could be. I mean, it's. I'll also be entirely honest. I'm not even so. I, the, the term seersucker suit, I just saw on Twitter the other day in a context I cannot recall. And <laughs> okay. um, well, the fact that you don't even really have a grasp of what it is. I don't really have a grasp of what it is. That's probably exactly haven't seen it. Yeah. Much. Yeah. I mean, but I it's the seen, it's yeah. the sort of crinkly, uh, blue and white cotton. You know, blue and white striped. Oh, uh, right. Yes. Yeah. I knew it was blue, but I, I yeah, I, well. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, well, it's, it doesn't have to be. And actually, there, you know, there oh. were like pink and white seersucker suits, but right. it's the, the sort of narrow stripes, uh, very, very close narrow stripes, and the, and the light, breathable cotton is, is very significant aspect of it. Right. Yeah, so. now that you describe it, I think that make that makes perfect sense, and I, I do know of those, but I don't know the last time I saw somebody wear one. Right. Um, but that's the interesting thing about fashion, which is that something that was perfectly normal a hundred years ago makes you seem crazy for wearing today. 
Um, when you get yeah, to, when you get to the, or the evidently like ten years ago, probably yeah, <laughs> that that is also true. But yeah. I mean, when you consider, for example, that it's sort of a cultural thing in the U.S. that's been around for over you know fifty years, men shouldn't have long hair. What are those awful long-haired men doing? But you go back one hundred and fifty years, and that was the norm. Like, when in right. human history did men have to have short hair until very recently? And now it's treated as this absolute by a lot of people that it's, you know, you have to go into your gender role, which requires you to have short hair as a guy. Yeah, well, and to some extent, well, yeah, anyway, there's like a vast conversation down that path that I well, there is, hold but... myself back from at the moment. But only to say, um, one of the things I found very, I found this very delightful photograph uh, circulating sometime in the last year that um, uh, was a colorized photograph of a Confederate POW on a uh, on a Union ship. So the photograph was taken of him leaning against the bulkhead, and um, just, you know, just looking into the camera. And he's not wearing his uniform. He's uh, maybe the pants or the uniform pants, but he's just wearing like a his undershirt. And he's looking into the camera. He's got this kind of distressed steel with bolts on it in the background. And um, he, uh, you know, when the photograph was colorized, it's really amazing because he just looks, you know, it's like, it's like 19th century or, you know, 19th century off the coast of uh, the Chesapeake, you know, like in the middle of the Chesapeake or, uh, you know, 2018 somewhere in Brooklyn and he, he just looks like some American. He just looks like some, you know, young hipster, uh, with the kind of like with a little stubble and sort of wavy, uh, mid-length hair. And it's just incredible to see it. I mean, obviously the problem here is that I'm trying to describe a picture. Um, but, it, it'll take but I can just tell you that it was simply, yeah, well, I'm getting there. <laughs> Give me, give me a minute. Uh, but the, po- the, the point I'm making is you just have to take my word for it. I'll just leave it at a relatively few words. But um, uh, as, as striking as it is to see like World War II photographs colorized, for example, this one is striking for the particular reason that you are just shocked to not just like, oh, this is neat to see it in color, what it must have been like then. It's like, holy shit, this is this isn't now and that's the that's the amazing right. moment yeah well so i mean that's so the the hair as you mentioned it's like mid-length wavy you'd think of a hipster in brooklyn um which is of course you know the other factors where that's at the point when men started to have short hair um but not quite as short as now um whereas the people on our money your your, your washington your your jefferson not your lincoln or your roosevelt but People on a lot of our money, they were wearing wigs to have longer hair as men. Something that if you mm-hmm. if you wore a, wi- a white powdered wig today, people would people would think there was something wrong with you, even though it was a perfectly legitimate fashion choice two hundred years ago. Right. And we're talking here about the founders of our democracy, and so when you're thinking about the founders of our democracy, you know, um, they. Uh, that, that, that they dressed in a way that we cannot dress now. And you think, well, how does that align with the democratic principles that they were setting up? 
and you think, man, is that an acceptable segue? Let's do it. <laughs> the standards for what counts as an acceptable segue change radically over time. Depends on how much sleep say. I've gotten the night before. Yeah. And they how all quickly we just want to move on with the conversation here. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, those with lots of time do what they can, and right. the harried suffer what they must. They suffer what they must. Uh, all right, so this is, as I said, we're talking about principles of democracy today. Last time we uh, spoke, it was a couple weeks ago because we've both had traveling and company involved, um, but we're back now, and we've had some time to think about our discussion on why one would have a democracy. And today we want to talk a little bit more about some of the more specific democratic principles um, that make that democracy function, and at what point can we still consider something a democracy? Uh, this has been in the news just this week with the Supreme Court ruling that Ohio can purge uh, voters from its roles in the manner that it had been doing. Um, and this is, there's a, we're at, we're at a moment in our republic's history where one party has been consistently and systematically trying to prevent people who want to vote from voting. And it's not a both sides thing. Only one side has been trying to do this. And this makes it difficult for those of us who want to appear fair-minded uh, because one side is, I would argue, very much in the wrong from democratic principles. Uh, and it, and it's, it's, it's difficult because we're so used to thinking, well, if you're just attacking the Republicans, well, the Democrats obviously do it too. I don't see a lot of examples of Democrats suppressing the vote in any way, other than the generic, oh, we run attack ads that make you not want to vote for my opponent. Um, David, have you seen any sort of real both sidesism to voter suppression efforts? Yeah. Um, I agree with your framing here that this really is, to me, a an issue that's one of the master issues of of politics itself uh, in our democracy in any country, it should be the same that if one of your major political institutions is founded on the principle of making it harder for people to participate in the system, then that's a bad actor and should be counteracted. And it's, I think it's tragic too, because people who, you know, we, we've had a lot of these discussions now and we've, we've discussed, I think, the way in which um, there, you know, there are conservatives who have conservative ideology. So that's kind of an abstracted level of kind of potentially the, you know, the, the, the sum total of what you've read and the late nights thinking about something before you go to sleep or whatever. You know, that may push you to adopt a certain political position. But it's largely also the case that we've discussed, I think, that people just have a tendency, you know, a, a, an assertive, a conservative outlook, and that that finds an expression in certain, uh, you know, party, certain parties, certain, certain ideologies, and it comes before it. People who have that conservative disposition, I think, are very poorly served by... Uh, today's Republican Party, including in this in this way, that if the Republican Party actually competed to win people's votes as opposed to 
desperately seizing power and taking steps to deny them the ability to vote, then they might not actually be in that much worse a position. Right. You know, I mean, like if they actually they, like because there are compelling ideas that that a conservative comp- party can use to win the support of people who are temperamentally conservative. Um, it's not, you know, they, like they, they can win f- the fight fairly in this, in the United States. Um, and the idea that they are not content to do that. I mean, it's like, okay, this is politics. As they say, it ain't beanball. Uh, so they, they don't necessarily want to fight fair and it may be naive to expect them to. Um, but it's just all the more, um, frustrating as you put it for people who want to be charitable and want to, uh, yeah, not, not even merely fair, but actually charitable in assessing the, um, you know, the intentions and positions of, of, uh, all the actors in the system. And it's just, it's just, it's just horrible. And it, and it does really differentiate the two parties that, um, there's not much you can say in defense of a systematic position of making it harder for other people to vote. There's just, there's just no way to defend that. And, um, right. It's about them having just enough of an excuse to let the court have the courts tell them they can do it. Right. Which I mean, you know, a lot of this, so the voter suppression efforts have evolved over time, obviously. And all of the ones that we think of from the past are now considered horrible things that how dare they ever do this? Things like we're going to put in a literacy test to make it harder for some people to vote. We're going to put a poll tax in to prevent certain people from voting. We're going to prevent women from voting. We're going to not let black people vote. Now, there are a lot of these things that end up getting. We're not going to let people between the ages of 18 and 21 vote. Right. Which was the case for a shockingly long time. (laughs) I mean, we have these other categories, but age is. Uh, is another one that yeah, and and most yeah. of those you know solved by constitutional amendment, mm-hmm. um, which is interesting because if you think about it, a constitutional amendment is the way of saying there are some states we will never trust to to do this honorably, and so we're going to yeah. essentially force it on them, right. um, which is depressing. The idea of <laughs> eighteen being the age where you vote, you know, it's it's fairly arbitrary, but at the same time, any other age would be arbitrary. And it does seem perfectly reasonable to say the age at which you can get conscripted into military service is the point at which you should have some vote over that military service. Yeah, well, I think that was the... Right, I mean, that was, that was exactly what they were doing, yeah. That, that, was, was, the that was the reason. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which, you know, is good. And <laughs> plus, 18 being just the age of majority in general, I mean, any age would be arbitrary, so you have to pick one. And 18 is the right. age that we as a culture have picked. Right. Uh, but anyway, so all of those past things that blocked people from voting are now s- property requirements. You know, these yeah. are now seen as horribly anti-democratic and horribly wrong. And they have to come up with a better excuse each time they want to put a new you know, thing up there. In the case of voter ID laws, they start with something that seems uncontroversial, which is that we want to make sure you're the actual registered voter that you say you are. When you vote, like as, as a general principle, that seems like the sort of thing where a lot of people probably thought that's not a rule already. You know, when you right. show up at the polling place, you don't have to prove who you are. 
But, I mean, there's the biggest counter to that concern is that in-person voter fraud is one of the most inefficient ways you could possibly try to affect an election. I don't, I mean, when you think about what the sheer logistics of that would be to try to pull that off on any sizable scale, that seems ridiculous, especially if you compare it to potential fraud from absentee voting, which the Republicans do not want to put all of these restrictions on because absentee votes tend to go Republican. Um, and, And the entire idea that it's voter fraud, we also have no evidence of it happening. The president puts together an entire commission just to look at it, and they disband with nothing happening because, guess what, there wasn't sufficient evidence of it happening. Um, And this gets to an issue that we have raised in the past, which is how many innocent people do you allow to suffer for something to catch how many guilty people? And in the case of voter ID laws, you have to think how many how many people who show up at a polling place who want to exercise their right to vote to choose their government, how many of them get turned away because compared to how many people who want to vote illegally who then don't get to vote illegally because of this law. And I would have immense trouble believing that that number is even anywhere close to one to one. You know, I, I, I would of imagine, I mean, it's, you know, I mean it's, yeah, it, this is, this is a massive imbalance in favor of preventing people from voting. No, it's like, it, it's not even one to a thousand. Right. I mean, yeah. there are, there are clearly demonstrated cases of, you know, numbers in the thousands of people across the country who, um, I mean, I think, I think even, I, I, I don't want to go speak too confidently on this, but I think, I mean, in certain large states, the, the argument is that some thousands or even tens of thousands of people, I mean, like in Florida, right? I mean, this is verging into a separate territory on the issue of, uh, restoring voting rights to felons, uh, which is, which is separate. Uh, well, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a distinct category within the conversation that we're having. Um, but in Florida, my, my recollection of that, of that figure is something on the order of 250,000 people, uh, who are, who have been denied the ability to vote. I mean, and it was something similar to that was the number of people that, um, uh, I'm blanking on the name now, but the, um, governor of Virginia restored voting rights. To oh, right. McAuliffe. McAuliffe. Thank you. Um, and, uh, you know, so the, so these, if, if we're broadening the discussion to some, to, you know, beyond simply the voter ID issue, but the question of, um, you know, to some extent it's a natural category to broaden because, um, if you say felons cannot vote, then you, you bring in this whole question of proving that you are not a felon who is not, you know, ineligible to vote or the state than having an interest in proving that people are felons, you know, just holding that standard, right? So, so it brings in this relationship that you were talking about of how do you set the parameters? How do you set the tools um, of, of government up? And how do you um, calibrate them such that whatever ratio of people then pass through, as you said, um, Relative to the, you know, it's better the the old phrase that it's better to let ten right. guilty people go free than than that one innocent person goes to prison. Uh, you know, how do you how are you calibrating it for like, well, how many felons do you allow to vote to make sure that those bad bad felons never re-enter society and never have a vested interest in productive engagement with the rest of their community? You know, 
I mean, obviously, I, I've played my cards on, I've shown my heart cards on that position yes. as well. But the point well, is that it, it just introduces a whole extremely dangerous and destructive vision of our society as one that is fundamentally focused on excluding people from access to this fundamental right of citizenship as opposed to the whole concept of the more perfect union, which is we have excluded people, vast categories of people, for the significant majority of our history as a country, but it has been getting better. And now that we have approached this incredible pinnacle in so many ways relative to everything that has come before, it, it's turning out to be the pinnacle because it's going backwards. And... Um, Hopefully and it's, it's just from... a local maximum. Exactly, exactly. One, one can hope. Well, you would think that voting rights for felons would be very likely to get a boost soon, because um, when the Mueller probe <laughs> is done, there are a lot of Republicans lot who know they're going Republican to be felons. felons. So, right. Yeah, um, that's that's certainly a factor. Yeah. When I said one to one, that's. I mean, I would because I, I, I brought that up not because I thought it would be anyone knows to one to one. I know it's in thousands to one, but because. Um, you know, if it were one to one, that's still a moral question. Like it right. wouldn't be, you would, it wouldn't be clear that you're doing the right thing by by having it be at one to one. Um, but to have it be at thousands to one, I mean, that's that's just wrong. And um, part of the problem too is that they can lie about why they're putting voter ID requirements in, but sometimes mm-hmm. they let the masks. We, but everybody knows what they're doing. And right. some of the ways you know what they're doing is that when they, where they institute these these voter ID laws, sometimes you get Republican officials saying, this will win us the state. And sometimes... Right, like in, uh, like in Pennsylvania. Carolina. Yeah. Um, I, thought there was, I thought there was somebody from Pennsylvania who said it during the 2012 election. Um, but um, we might be thinking of the same person. Uh, but no, anyway. I mean, it's very possibly in, North, in Pennsylvania as well, but it was absolutely the case mm-hmm. in North Carolina. I remember somebody on video who was, he was like even pointing out with his fingers, here are the things we're going to do, or the things that we've accomplished. And he says, you know, voter ID, that'll get Mitt Romney elected in this state. And it was like, okay then. But, um, but while they're instituting these requirements, they also make it harder to get the IDs. That's the most absurd and just, right. you've given the game away, you're a horrible person you could get to when they say, we're going to issue this voter ID requirement, we're going to close all of these places to get voter IDs, we're going to make it harder to get voter IDs, which, by the way, is what they started to do with voting itself. We get early voting, and then, it, oh, it turns out that minorities like to do that? People who don't vote for us like to do that? Well, okay, let's start cutting back on early voting. Yeah. There's no reason that voting should be as hard as it is right now. And um, you know, one of the things that we have seen in um, uh, in recent years is and something that I think the Republican Party as a whole with this Fox News and talk radioification they've had is that they go to great lengths to kill off your compassion and your empathy so that you can hate the people that they need you to hate. Right. And they say, well, you're just lazy if you can't get a voter ID. They say, oh, if you can't get out to vote, even though we set it up on a Tuesday when you have to go to work and you don't have child, you know, all these things. We've done all these things to make it harder for you to vote, and we have no sympathy for you if if that makes it too hard for you. I mean, that's 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 it's an I think it's an insane thing that 
people who are who are members of the Republican Party really need to step back and consider whether you think that death of compassion is a good thing, whether or not that's the direction you think a party or a society should go to say we're going to make things as hard as possible and then not care about the people that we've intentionally prevented from voting by making it harder. If, if it were not a big deal to make it harder to vote, then why are they doing it? Well, I think going back to the topic I raised by talking about people who are temperamentally conservative, that there are um, that there are people who are motivated by a sense of um, the virtue of of toil and austerity and um, the idea that I mean, you know, there are people who uh, are reacting to this abomination on our southern border and not even on our southern border throughout our country where people are being rounded up and hounded out of communities in every state. Um, and, but, but this particular abomination of, of, uh, separating children from their families as not as incidental to the rule of law, but as an intentional directly chosen matter of policy to, uh, to attempt to deter other people from, from following in their footsteps, you know, people look at that and say, well, they look at it and they see the, the, the slender read of we must enforce the law. And they infuse that concept with so much significance that, you know, they say, well, you got to be tough. You know, it's, it's tough love, but you have to enforce the laws. And that's the most significant thing. And they allow that sternness to overcome all the others, you know, relevant, uh, approaches to considering that, that issue because they get to, you know, they get to pretend that only one, well, I, I won't say pretend, but, you know, they set up these competing values and, um, they say, well, you know, the most important one is sternness. We have to be stern in order to be fair, in order to be just, all the other things. They're all secondary to, to the sternness. And um, that approach tracks with the matter that you discussed of, of voting, which is, you know, well, if they really wanted to vote, there's a system, they can do it. You know, it's not like it was 50 years ago. You know, we're not racists. You know, we're not anti-whatever. Like, there's a system. They can come, they can come and stand in line in the in the DMV um, and jump through all these hoops because if it were really that important to them to exercise their sacred right to vote, you know, and I think it's clearly hypocrisy because as you just said, it's like, well, if you, if you value the right to vote so much that you're making it harder to do, you know, if you're saying like, we have to have a policy to protect the sacred crucial pillar of our democracy, you know, to ensure that only the right people are voting. I was like, well, if it's that, if, if voting is that important that we have to make sure that the right people are doing it, it shouldn't it also be as important to make sure that any citizen can just automatically get registered, right? Like the, the policy position is, uh, is determined basically entirely on, on where you fall on the sternness question is like, do you, is it, is it sacred and therefore it has to be really hard or is it sacred and therefore it, ha it, it should be really easy? Right. You know, and it, it becomes a temperamental thing, I would say, again. Yes. And I mean, and then, 
If you want to talk about toil being an important part for it, shouldn't we all be toiling to make sure everybody can vote? Is it? Wouldn't that be appropriate? I mean, it, part of what drives me so crazy about this voter ID, voter suppression stuff is that the fundamental idea of having an ID when you show up at the voting booth could work out very well and be something we could all agree to if they were willing to put in if, if when they did that they made it so that everybody had an id it, i mean the, the, like the easy step here that would make all of this not a problem is if you just helped everybody get a photo id no, that's they, have no, that was... they, have, they have no desire to do that because why would they that would that would defeat the point because the point isn't to make sure that um, you don't get fraudulent votes the point is to suppress democratic votes Exactly. Yeah, yeah no, I mean, that, that, that seems that, that's like it. that is very clearly the position as uh, revealed by these cases from Pennsylvania to North Carolina. Because, right. I mean, if the Republicans say. came but, out. But, the, but part of the problem is that because we have this very diverse, uh, cacophonous democracy, people in good faith can defend it because it, you know, twangs the cord of you know, sternness and, and sort of rigidity and ruthlessness, um, yeah, within their, the sternness that only part. applies to other people. Right. Like you'll notice yeah. we have to follow the law. The law is the most important thing in the entire world, except when members of Trump's team get in trouble for, uh, you know, foreign agent registration act violations, in which case it's just, right. absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, no, I'm not saying they're hypocrites. I'm saying they, they don't know they're hypocrites. Right. I mean, I'm saying they're hypocrites, but yeah. yeah. Uh, so you mentioned diversity. That To, to move along on this topic, um, one of the things in our – so when we discuss uh, democratic principles, things that would make something a better democracy, we are, of course, going to be based to a large extent on the way things are in the U.S. because we're the most familiar with it. Um, we can see some of those flaws. And when you speak about diversity, one of the other um, elements that comes up is geographic diversity. The United States, States has a system that really privileges where a vote takes place um, very, very strongly. And um, so what do, what do you think about the – so things like gerrymandering are only possible because where you vote is relevant. Um, Trump was only able to win the Electoral College because of where he got his votes. What do you think about having geography matter in voting? Do you think that particular local areas need their own representative and that that's so important that it doesn't matter if it distorts the broader vote? Well, I think that um, as I hinted at in my strange segue into uh, seersucker suits. Uh, I like history, and I think acknowledging history is important. And acknowledging the history of how America, the United States of America, became a country and expanded as a country is important. And so part of that is also focusing on how people came to be in certain places. And the idea that so, so just to set the terms of discussion, you know, the idea that Wyoming has the same has 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 you know a seat at the table on the sort of fundamental roadblock uh, 
you know, this, this, the phase of national governance, um, and legislation and the advice and consent on the appointment of, of, uh, federal officials and judges and has an equal ability to serve as the roadblock on national policy as a state like California is, uh, you know, is an extreme inequality. Uh, the question of how it got there though is separate from acknowledging that extreme ratio. And one of the things I, that occurred to me as something that I was sort of surprised that I hadn't seen someone else do was to go back to the nine, or the, um, 1790 census and check like, you know, the, the framers decided to do this. You know, they had big States and little States too. Um, the whole point of the Senate was to balance the big and little States because they also had the house of representatives. So thank you, Roger like, Sherman. You know, they made this choice. Um, knowing a lot of what we know now, but the question is, so what was the ratio then uh, compared to what it is now? I mean, now the ratio is California to Wyoming, where it's like... It's like 30 um, to 1 or something like that. It's I think it's even more, because it's like 30 million or something in California and half a million in Wyoming. Right, okay. Well, then about I mean, 60 it's, to it's, 1. It's, it's quite shocking. And um, I have now forgotten the equivalent, the actual figure. Uh, I should have brushed up on this. But, you know, I, the numbers are there. Um, it's a little hard to calculate because you're talking about 70-90. You're talking about right. three-fifths compromise. And, you know, uh, it, obviously a whole fraud discussion there. But um, but then once I did that, I, I felt relief because um, it's pretty extreme. You know, the difference between, I think it's um, like Vermont and uh, Pennsylvania or something. The biggest and, and smallest. Um, but, uh, you know, it is quite significant, but it's something like uh, 15 to 1 rather than, you know, like 60 to 1. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, um, you know, so that, so, so we are off the scale. You know, we are outside of where we uh, should be in terms of the, um, you know, the ratio that the founders found appropriate, uh, if that, to the extent that that is a meaningful statement, um, given all the other things they found appropriate. But, you know, but that discussion is a different one from, um, you know, from thinking about like, okay, there are people in Wyoming. Um, do you just, you know, do you just look at the, um, anomaly of uh, California's votes being so diluted and say, throw out the Senate. Is that your answer? Or do you, to, to actually get around to answering your question with a question, uh, do you just tweak the ratio again? Or do you throw out the category? I think, I think it makes sense to tweak the ratio and preserve that compromise rather than... Um, than throwing it out entirely because, you know, you have states like Alaska and Wyoming um, that have unique concerns that would just basically be ignored. I mean, there's no reason to think that they would be ignored if you had a fully proportional system. Um, and so the putting added geographical weight on their votes, um, 
I, you know, I think is is necessary in some way to respect the rights of those people because they are minorities. I mean, they are geographic minorities, but they're minorities and, uh, they deserve consideration. Right. Consideration, not deference, you know, not, uh, complete, uh, sort of, the, sort of the, you know, completely imbalanced, uh, sort of tossing out of the principle of, of, of equal representation, but consideration. Well, I would, I would add to this discussion, which is something that's a very crucial point, which is that the original construction of the federal government didn't imagine a particularly large role for the federal government, not yeah. anything compared to what it is today. I mean, the notion when they founded it was that the states were basically separate entities and the federal government was for a few things they had to coordinate on. Nowadays, the federal government plays a much larger role and it really, really matters to states like California that it's that some of its interests are being blocked in a Senate where its votes count for one sixtieth of some of the other votes on a, on a per person basis. And so yeah. it's not just the population ratios that have changed. It's also the very purpose of the federal government. But if, if yeah. we're going to move – so I would move, though, to congressional districts, which are weighted by population, although not perfectly. They're not all the same number of, of voters in them. But it's the fact that we have voting by district that allows for gerrymandering. I mean, if we didn't, if every state simply said, all right, you vote Republican or Democrat on a party slate, much like they do in parliamentary systems, and then said, okay, um, you know, 20 percent or, or, you know, 70, 50 percent of you voted Democrat, 50 percent of you voted Republican. So of our, you know, seven guys we get to send to the House because it was like 51, 49, we give one of you four and the other three. We don't do that. We have a system that's based on geography so you can gerrymander it. And it's not even just which state you're in that matters for your vote, but where in that state you happen to be located, which, again, ends up disadvantaging Democrats because they have an urban they have a largely urban constituency, which tends to cluster itself in one spot. And even if you tried to draw very reasonable congressional districts, if you weren't even trying to gerrymander, they would still end up at a disadvantage just because geographical voting hurts people who concentrate. Yeah, and, a, it's an un... Where you can, well, I was, what I, so what I mean by that is it's... Um, so because that, that is a, th- a question where, um, you know, well-intentioned people would, would still come up with different answers as to... Um, what you could, do you know what that, I just got a bit of a staticky thing. Do you know what that was? No. Okay. Well then I can't remember what I was saying. Um, that will be my cover. <laughs> I, I totally at all didn't drop the microphone and then have to, or drop my ear, earpiece and then have to uh, figure it out. Um, but anyway, speaking of geographical, you know, sorting, yeah, you just, I was, what we've been doing I is was... David just got up and walked around for reasons I don't understand. <laughs> but, um, but anyway, um, yeah. So when you want to talk about democratic principles when, and you want to think what is the best voting system, um, you know, is there a system better than what we have right now, which is called you know, first pa- past the post winner takes all, where if you get 51 percent, your opponent gets 49 percent. Bam, you win. You get everything, um, which is a lot you know, or that- much worse if your opponent gets five percent and another opponent gets 45 percent. Um, or I'm sorry, 
you know, if, if your opponent gets 5% and another opponent gets 20% and another opponent gets, you know, whatever, and the clear result is um, 70% of people didn't want you, yep. but no one else got 30, then you win. I mean, that's that's a... right. That's the horrific possibility presented by the well, first pass of the post. That's where that's where, so part of where this is going is that our current system prevents third parties. It, I mean, in our history, it has appeared at very third parties have appeared at various points, but mostly just when one party was dying. The Republican Party's emergence as the anti-slavery party in the 1850s and 1860s is really kind of the only example of a successful emergence of a third party into a relevant force. I mean, and that had to do more. That had to do as much with the fact that the Whigs collapsed as anything else. Um, yeah, I think it's a bit overstated because you know what is a relevant force. You know, if the socialist agenda gets adopted into the party platform of one of the major parties, that's a relevant force. But that's true. But but you know, the point of like people wanting to organize under the flag of a new institution because they feel that the existing ones have lost credibility and lost uh the mandate of heaven as it were uh yeah people people obviously seem to really like that <laughs> they, they say really like the idea of they just party. refuse uh, i think it it'd be interesting to see if americans are um sort of temperamentally different from other nationalities in this in this respect in terms of really not liking joining institutions as opposed to, you know, and, and holding out the possibility of forming a new one. But I think it's just something that people, that just appeals to a lot of people in this moment in human history. Um, yeah. to, to like the idea of sweeping the, 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 the table clean and introducing fresh faces and new organizations. Which, you know, I would, I would simply note that historically when that happens, it doesn't tend to go well. Right. We've discussed that. I mean, that was the subject of one of our previous podcasts, as I, as I recall. But the, you know, the bigger problem, as you pointed out in the introduction to this segment, is uh, it just doesn't work. You know, we have a constitution. Right. And Unless we change that system, the two parties will have their monopoly, um, yeah. which brings us to how would you change the system? And I don't know if you've been following this, David, but there have been a couple of state-level experiments on new voting systems um, that have come up in the primaries recently. Um, the one that got the most attention was California's. They wanted to get past part of this partisan polarization stuff that we've been seeing because our current system where we, in the primaries, the, part, the, members, the people who belong to one party will vote for who they want, and then in the general election, everybody chooses between the, you know, effectively between the top, the candidate from the Democrat, the candidate from the Republican parties, effectively. Um, and, and that would result in more and more extreme people because the people who show up in Democratic or Republican primaries tended to be much more extreme than the general election voter. And that's part of how we get Republicans who are so crazy out there, especially in states like California, where the Republican Party has so little power that its people just keep getting crazier and crazier. See, you know, i.e. so many of them from California. But... Um, so California wanted to stop this by trying something called a jungle primary, where there's instead of the parties having a primary, there's one primary where you vote amongst all the candidates, and then those the top two candidates end up on the ballot in November. And by the time that I, I guess they they passed the law to implement this in 2012, but this is the first year I remember anybody really talking about it. Um, and 
in the in the run up to it, suddenly everybody started panicking and thinking it was just the worst system ever because they realized that one party or the other might get shut out of the general election. Um, that you could have a situation where 10 Democrats run and two Republicans run, and then each of the Democrats gets, you know, uh, like 8%, 8%, the, yeah, like 8, they get 8% of the vote. Yeah, and then you get Republicans, you get like 10% of the vote, then you only have Republicans on the ballot, even though there was like an 80-20 split in favor of a liberal candidate. Um, now, in the in the event, the Democrats did not get shut out of any of, I believe, any races, at least not 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 um, large races that anybody was covering in the national media. Uh, so it, it, they sort of avoided that. But if you think about how that played out, it was much worse than the normal primary system, because now we're basically just back to the parties choosing the candidate because the Democrat Democratic Party has to say, hey, too many people are running. We, we're going to back one of you or we're going to tell you to step out or something like that. Um, like that, that just it didn't solve the problems they were hoping it would solve. And I wouldn't be surprised if they undo that law in the near future. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, there was no disaster, so um, it's unlikely. It, seems, it strikes me as unlikely that, that they'll do much uh, to change the system. Um. But obviously there was a near disaster and it was, I was following that news as well uh, to not terribly closely, but I was following it in general in part because it just fits into the, um, the narrative of the disorganized idealistic, but um, you know, idealistic, but disorganized Democrats who shoot themselves in the foot. Uh, But it turned out that, that wasn't at all the issue and that it was much more like a, you know, uh, that sort of ultimately American gift to the world of, of jazz, which was like, this is total chaos. Nobody knows what's going to happen, but Oh, wait a second. Here it is. It's a beautiful plan. It it seems like a plan, even though they were kind of, or, uh, you know, improvising on the, on the, on the go. I mean, even though they avoided disaster, I think the negative press and panic about all of it will lead to people trying to undo it. I'm also concerned. Well, I'm sure people will try to undo it, but, um, you know, but like, this is another issue, though, that negativity, you know, the idea that negativity and stress is a problem. I mean, mm-hmm. negativity and stress is the natural result of a conversation between people who disagree. What else is a democracy but a conversation between people who disagree? So you have to get it all out. And the more the, ma- I mean, the empirical result of of that primary season in California was the more the merrier because they came, they had their say, and uh, Democrats didn't get shut out. And so the the will of the people of California, which is, uh, again, empirically much more aligned with Democrats than Republicans, uh, didn't, it wasn't, wasn't um, thwarted by a, a system that, uh, you know, was poorly designed, which the outcome of the example you gave of 10 Republic or 10 uh, Democrats who each get 8% falling to two Republicans who each get 10%, you know, that would have, that would have been a clear example of a, of a system failure um, that doesn't exist. But, but, but that the system of the jungle primary exacerbates the winner take all having a split is bad thing. I mean, I, I, I don't know. Yeah, I guess well, we, we may, just, I, we may disagree, but I just, well, so I was, yeah, I mean, we we made this. I don't think we. There, there, there are many things we could potentially disagree about. 
I think um, I, I would just say that I don't think there's going to be a change, and mm. you can take the other position of that. I would, however, say that um, as a as the son of a woman who lives in and counts ballots in Maine, wow, uh, that's where we were going next. Excellent. A much better a much better proposal, a much yeah. better system. Oh, I would say. Yeah. So for those of you who don't know, uh, Maine had another experiment this year, which um, at least going into it, everybody was talking more favorably about. We didn't really hear much about the results of it in Maine because they wouldn't have been as spectacular as the fear that a party gets shut out in a bunch of major elections. But Maine was experimenting with ranked choice voting, um, which, I mean, really seems like. I don't know. I'm not somebody who's examined all the social choice theories that could go into um, the possible drawbacks of ranked choice voting. 538 did a podcast about it um, a week or so ago where they discussed the main system, and um, they suggested that despite it sounding very good, there was some empirical evidence, some research that suggested that it might lower turnout. <coughs> and... Um, and that's a potential thing to keep your eye on, but that might just be because it's a complex new system people aren't familiar with. But with ranked choice voting, it, there's a lot of stuff you can get into on the exact structures of it. But, I mean, I, I, I don't know the specifics of the main system. Was it one where you drop the first vote at each, the, the, the lowest vote getter at each round? That's my understanding of how it works, yeah. Right. But in, in, in brief, with ranked choice voting, it is what it sounds like. You get to rank the choices of your votes, and if your number one vote um, gets the fewest votes in the first round, then they drop that off and your number two vote counts, which is basically a way to prevent wasted votes. It's a way to let you vote for third-party or less popular candidates and not throw the election to somebody you might vehemently disagree with. It's a way that you would, you would have been allowed to vote for Ralph Nader without costing Al Gore the election to George W. Bush. And I, would, I would say as a matter of history, it's actually in Maine, um, the purpose is to prevent Governor LePage from right. being the governor. Then the issue there is is not really that um, they were trying to encourage people to fully express themselves through <laughs> voting for third party or independent candidates. It's that they had uh, in 2010 an election where Maine, uh, where LePage won 38 to 36 against this guy, Elliot Cutter, and, you know, who's, a, or Elliot Cutler, excuse me, who's a independent and a Democratic candidate who got, you know, who split the rest of the vote. Um, and then when they tried to rally the horses and get him out in 2014, um, this, you know, Cutler ran again, this time very much as a spoiler. And it was a, a difference of less than uh, something like 5%, 48 to 43, I think, where Elliot Cutler got something like eight. Um, and so the, you know, the voters said, this is not the will of the people. We need to change how this works. And I mean, it's actually, you know, with all with all due respect, it's exactly the opposite of what you said. It's, it's to discourage the spoilers. Well, I said it would allow you to vote for the third party candidate. I didn't say um, that third party candidates would win. No, no, no I was I was not. Um, 
I think we are in agreement on the practical yeah, I'm not, application. I'm not, blame, I'm not like blaming you for saying it. I was just as a matter of, of the particular case in Maine, you know, that this is the issue that they were responding to. Right. And it's it's basically the issue That's the, the issue Republican I said. Republican Party should be responding to vis a vis Trump. That it's the same uh, yeah, the same situation was at, at play in so many of the primaries where Trump did not get a majority and yet because he got the significant plurality again and again. He ran roughshod over the other candidates. Right. Um, yeah. yeah. So, but what I meant by that was you can feel free to vote for the third party candidate without worrying that you'll do a LePage situation. That's the point of ranked choice voting. Um, but then there are if people who have studied this stuff say that there are other decisions you can make in the voting setup that can result in different outcomes, which brings us to name check um Arrow's impossibility theorem, a theorem by the recently deceased Kenneth Arrow, who met, who died last year at the age of 95, who came up with Arrow's impossibility theorem, I think back in the 50s, is, is that right? But hmm. the point of Arrow's impossibility theorem is that um, it sets a bunch of criteria that we want in a voting system. Um, I'm not going to spell it all out because I would do a bad job and you should really go read about it. Um, but it's also a bunch of criteria that you want for a voting system that we would consider to make it you know, ultimately fair and acceptable with nobody playing, uh, nobody being dominant in terms of, you know, my vote ends up being the one that determines everything in order to, to construct a system like that. He looked at all of the criteria and said there, you can't, it's impossible. Um, there is no perfect voting system. And that's something that we have to bear in mind. No matter what system we come up with, there's some potential for it somewhere at some point to have a weird result that we don't like, that we that is in, that is determined by the voting system that we used, where you would get one candidate under one system and a different candidate under a different system that's even slightly different. And that's something we have to accept. Yeah, and the last conversation we had, I believe I used the expression that... Um, all right. You know, I characterize democracy as a way of communicating the legitimacy of the government. And it, that, you know, I'm not sure why in that particular instance I use that, that characterization as opposed to um, a different one, such, you know, such as that suggested by our conversation now, which is you know, dem democracy and elections provide a mechanism for people to select the leader they want, right? But that's the that's the difference here. Is the uh, the, the one su one suggested by your citation of the impossibility theorem? There is that um, if the point is for the people to express their will and ch select a leader, um, then you run into these tremendous problems uh, in calibrating, you know, in calibrating the system to deliver an outcome because do you take the 35 or the, uh, again, without getting into the weeds of, um, of how uh, Arrow described the system, which I would also, I'm sure butcher. Um, if on the other hand, it is a system that, basically gives people a sense of closure and fairness in the outcome, then that's, that's a very different scenario. Right. You yeah. know, there's a different set of factors with which to evaluate the performance of the system. Yes. Well, 
We're closing in on the end of our podcast for today. Um, as always, there's so much more to talk about than we had yeah. time to talk about. Um, so many other elements uh, in there about different ways to vote and how those affect outcomes. And we didn't even really talk about gerrymandering. I mean, we mentioned it in terms of how a non-geographic region might prevent it. But, you know, gerrymandering is, is a hard issue to deal with. Um, that's something that deserves, I mean, many other people have done whole podcasts on gerrymandering or in the case of 538, I think they did a four part series of podcasts on gerrymandering. And I would recommend that you listen to those as always, this podcast is your resource for better podcasts to listen to. Um, <laughs> yeah. We're, we're the Huffington post of, um, of podcasts. Is Huffington post the one that used to just like post other people's things. They actually have actual, they have actual reporters now, though, don't they? Yeah, I think in the past it, it wasn't. Yeah, in the past they used to be known that way as a news aggregator, yeah. but now they actually now Twitter is our news aggregator, and right. and I think HuffPo does actual stuff. But um, but anyway, so we're going to uh, call this episode here, um, and I'm going to do a, a quick sign off for you. Um, uh, last weekend I was back in Ohio for my 15th high school reunion. Um, I enjoy my high school reunions very much, although I cannot top the 10-year reunion where I achieved the American dream of losing 80 pounds right before the 10-year reunion. <laughs> it was spectacular. I can never top it. It was wonderful. But I bring this up to mention that um, I got to see our beloved family cat, Loki, who reached the age of 17 years. Um, she's the last pet that my parents have that was a pet when I was at home. So it's the last one that, um, that I would say was my cat, quote unquote. They have some other cats now, um, because time takes its toll. Um, then they replaced some of the, the earlier cats, although no one can really replace them. But every time I come back to DC, I would make sure to say goodbye to Loki just because she was getting old and you never know what would happen. And sure enough, um, you know, she died the next day after I got back, and I was just bawling and inconsolable for a while um, because I loved that cat, and she was sweet and wonderful. And, um, you know, it's just one of those things that makes me um, always think about when you're seeing someone and you always and, and you think I got to make sure I say goodbye to this person in the right way, or if I'm not going to see them in a while, because you never know what might happen. Um, and yeah, I'm just glad that I sat there the morning before I left and you know petted Loki for a while. You could tell that she was um, she was not doing so well. Um, that was pretty apparent. Um, but you know, I had 17 wonderful years with this adorable cat. And as my mom said when our first cat died, um, you know, the, the real problem, the only real problem with pets is that you live longer than they do. And, you know, if you've got a pet out there, if you've got little kittens you saved from crows and put in a box, if you've got some, you know, rescue cat that you have, all of our cats came from shelters, um, then, you know, go give them a hug, go play with them and just enjoy the time you've got with them. So we'll see you next week. Bye.